who's Vice President and Director of Global Health and HIV Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. And um, we've talked a lot about this talk uh, yesterday evening in preparation and in anticipation. So you know that it's on everybody's mind, and that is what is the effect and what effect is there going to be? Can we know what it's going to be on um, how HIV care is going to be changed into the future with the Affordable Care Act, with potential changes in Ryan White and other ways in which HIV care is, fun is um, funded and supported. And uh, Jennifer is really ideally suited to um, address these questions, ask additional ones, and maybe even answer some of them. Thank you. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, as a non-physician, I'm learning a lot. That last, last talk was really helpful. Um, I'm also a New Yorker who lives in DC, so I don't think we have the same uh, translation pace problem, but we clearly have a different translation problem. So um, I'm going to be talking about policy and try to translate that somewhat to what it might mean for, for you all. Um, so the first thing, I don't have any financial affiliations to disclose, but I do want to make an important uh, comment about where I work. I work at something, a place called the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is independent completely and not at all related to Kaiser Permanente or any Kaiser industry. So um, I can't talk about what KP is doing, but this, we're an independent foundation. And our role really is to do policy research and analysis that informs different stakeholders about what is actually going on. And so today we're going to talk about a very confusing topic, the Affordable Care Act. So these are the learning objectives um, to discuss the key provisions, particularly as they affect or could affect people with HIV, and to identify the potential implications for Ryan White, um, and uh, for not just Ryan White patients, but also for providers. And the other thing I want to say is that um, as providers, you play such a critical role um, in how this all works. Or does it? You know, doesn't. It's going to be challenging. But your patients are. Some of them will be affected. Some won't. But they're going to be coming to you. I'm sure they already are. And you're trying to figure it out. But we hear again and again the role of providers in the rollout of the Affordable Care Act is so so critical. So I hope that today um, at least it will provide some some information about where to look for more or what areas you should be thinking about. So a few questions that are just. A couple are just for information, and then a couple will be uh, sort of test questions that we can check at the end. So my first question is, do you think the ACA will, on balance, be better, worse, or you're unsure about its impact on people with HIV? Go. Okay, let's see what people think. Unsure. I think that's, that's, I would on balance say better, but I think there's a lot of, of uncertainty. So I'm not going to ask that again. We'll have to check back in a couple years, perhaps. <laughs> the second question is, are you a Ryan White provider? Go. Wow, OK. Well, good. Um, 
All right, now we're going to get to some questions that um, maybe you know the answers to, maybe you won't, but hopefully if you don't fall asleep, you will know the answers by the end of this talk. So under the health reform law, as of 2014, January 1st, somebody with HIV applies for health coverage in a new health plan in the marketplaces that you're all hearing about in the states. What could happen to them? Will they be, can, some, can they be denied coverage by that new health plan? Must they be covered, but there could be a waiting period? Or they must be covered, period? Or they can be charged higher rates? So which of these is, is true? I'm not going to tell you the right answer, but everyone did very well. <laughs> okay, under the health reform law, the Ryan White HIV AIDS program will no longer be needed, can support outreach and enrollment to help current clients access new options, will no longer be able to pay for care for those who gain new Medicaid or exchange coverage, even if those individuals have limits. So we'll get back to this one as well. So moving forward, um, I'm just going to show a few things first that you all know, um, which I think just give us a sense of the opportunity we have and the challenges. So we, we hopefully you all saw President Obama make this, or heard about his speech talking about end of AIDS, and this was really prompted by 052. And, and we also have, of course, a national strategy. So tools and, and optimism that we might not have had a few years ago. You all know about the challenges that we still face in the United States with the number of people living with HIV and stable new infections and even increasing new infections. Um, people with HIV are more likely, and we heard some of this from, from Vicki, more likely to be low income and uninsured than the population in the US overall. Very heavy reliance on Medicaid. Most are not on treatment. And we have this possibility. So I'm going to show the inevitable treatment cascade, just because I think every talk now does show the treatment cascade. Um, but the main things here is that if you look at the treatment cascade and look at the overall population of people with HIV in the United States, two-thirds are not on treatment, only are not in regular care, sorry. And only a third are estimated to be on ARVs. And we all know 25% virally suppressed. Whether these are the exact estimates, these are the general estimates. And that's not a good situation. This just shows the insurance coverage of people with HIV in care um, in the US. And this is from the uh, HIV Research Network uh, clinics. So it's not necessarily representative. But from other things, uh, other studies out there, it's, it's pretty good gauge. And mainly, 78% are already relying on the public sector. And you see here what a small share, and this may reflect your, your practice as well, are um, privately insured. So what's the opportunity presented by the Affordable Care Act? And I know this is um, very, and by the way, these slides will be available to you, um, all of them, so you, you will get them. Um, so what I thought would be helpful is I would, there's so many provisions in this act. And they go into effect at different points in time. There's uncertainty about some of them. Um, and what I thought I would do is highlight the big buckets that will likely affect people with HIV in this country and will affect Americans um, in the country. And, uh, and try to help walk through those and some of the key issues or questions that may be there. And I'll go through each of these in a minute. But the first bucket is the consumer protections that come into effect. 
um, and private insurance reforms. The second is related to the healthcare marketplaces. The second are benefits. Third, sorry, Medicare fixes, prevention enhancements, Medicaid expansion, and health system improvements. So I'll go through some of these, but not all of them. So consumer protections um, and private insurance reforms, that will really be a huge benefit for people with HIV in this country, and essentially anyone who's sick, <laughs> who's been sick. Um, the, the ACA ends lifetime and annual coverage limits. So up until the ACA, if you're, your many insurance plans would say, you know, you can't go beyond this amount in a year, you can't go beyond this amount in your lifetime, and as we know for patients with HIV or any other high cost condition, that's a real barrier. That goes away. It's already gone away for um, annual, for lifetime, it goes away for annual. So this is a big change. The second, and you've all, I'm sure, heard about this one, the end to pre-existing condition exclusions. That's a huge one for your patients, I'm sure, and for all people with HIV or any illness, really. But we know from studies we've done at, Kaiser, at the Kaiser Family Foundation that people with HIV, unless you lived in a state like New York that had protections and a few others, you would just be denied coverage in the individual market. That can no longer happen because of the ACA as of 2014. And up till then, there's been a temporary system put in place. Your coverage can't be taken away from you because you were found out to be sick or there was some problem with your application. Um, and that was happening to people. So that goes away as well. Um, and you can't be charged higher rates just because you have a health condition or you're a pregnant woman or anything else that health insurers were doing to differentiate patients. They're, that's not allowed anymore under the law. Um, other things that I don't know are, are, are as well known, there's actually some very good protections that are brought into the ACA that exist in other parts of the law but now apply to health. Um, you cannot be discriminated in terms of getting health coverage or the benefit design based on all of the factors, age, sex, race, et cetera, but also sexual orientation and gender identity. And that's a change. Um, and you probably, probably know about this dependent coverage up to age 26. So if any of you have kids up to age 26, you might have already been able to cover them in your household. And that's um, a benefit as well. So everyone's heard about these marketplaces or exchanges that are going to take place in every state. And just, um, I think what gets confusing is that there are some things that may not happen in states and some things that may happen in states. Exchanges are things that have to happen in every state. The Supreme Court ruling did not change anything about consumer protections or about health exchanges. So every state has to have what's called a marketplace by 2014 although there's been some leeway given to states because it's a much heavier lift than the federal government realized it would be. But essentially what this means is that every state has to put in place a marketplace for people to buy coverage with choices, which doesn't really exist in most states now. And that, that marketplace has to provide information to clients about what's available so they can compare. Um, and it the, the government provides cost sharing provide subsidies to those who are low income and um, uh, tax credits to those at a slightly higher income. So if you're between 133% of federal poverty, it's about $15,000 a year for one person, uh, and 400% of federal poverty, you get either a premium uh, a subsidy or some kind of tax credit. So it's a way for people who could not get insurance because they had a pre-existing condition or couldn't afford it, even if they lived in a state that might offer it, can buy into the marketplace. 
And that's, that's a big, big change. Um, and that has to happen. What we don't, um, what some of the, the choices are, and, I sh and this, is a this is a recurring theme that should be, sh will become clear by the end of this. The ACA was in part designed to even the playing field across the country, because now you know what you get depends on where you live, right? Well, it's going to do that in some ways, but states are still the name of the game here. States have a huge amount of decision-making power um, to, to decide on a whole range of things. And one of the things they can decide is how they're going to run their exchange. Are they going to run it? Are they going to ask the federal government? Or are they going to default and say, the Fed, feds, you run it? Or are they going to share that with the feds? And this has been playing out. And I have a map that shows you in some states. The, the upshot is that many more states said, we're not going to do it than anybody anticipated. And so now the federal government is faced with having to run marketplaces in many, many states around the country. New York is one state that said, we're going to do it pretty early on. Um, but uh, uh, that is an issue. States also are going to decide who's in what plans they, they have regulations they have to follow about their plans, but they also are going to decide who's in their networks. Uh, and this is a really, really critical point that I'm going to make again later. Um, states have requirements about who they include in their networks. They have to include essential community providers, which actually include Ryan White. But states are not going to proactively seek out essential community providers from all sectors. It's really, un for better or for worse, and the onus is on the essential community provider universe to seek out the networks. And now is the time to do it. So if you take one thing away from this discussion, go back to wherever it is you are based, whether it's a hospital-based clinic, um, a CBO, et cetera, and figure out if that entity is already beginning to do outreach to figure out who to contract with with the marketplace networks. That is really the biggest take-home message in addition to one, which is help your patients find out what they're eligible for, that they need to start thinking about enrollment. But that is one from a provider perspective. Find out what you can do to get involved in networks. That will be critical, not just for your patients, but for your own um, entities. This is the map of where states are on their exchange decisions. So um, just to give you a sense, this was not the white or the ones who defaulted to the feds. We want the feds to run this. And um, the Fed, federal government didn't anticipate that they would be running 26 um, marketplaces around the country. Uh, <laughs> so that's a big, big issue. And that slowed some things down. Um, but 18 states, including New York, um, and some of, the, some of the states not all in, this, in the general vicinity of New York are running their own. So in New York, you would want to find out who your market, and we have some of this information at, at, on Kaiser's site, who your marketplace entity is. Um, but I can't emphasize enough that this is the time to do that. Um, because it's not, it's not going to happen automatically. OK, benefit standards. The other thing the ACA did, um, up until the ACA, other than some areas, there weren't really benefit standards around this country, right? If your health plan provided prescription drugs, great. If it pr provided mental health care, I mean, there, was, there were laws that have come into play and requirements on Medicaid, but there was a lot of variation and health plans had a lot of discretion as to what they were going to provide and employers would purchase that based on um, you know, what they could afford or they decided they afford. There were actual benefit standards put into place under the ACA. And you might probably heard about something called the Essential Health Benefits, EHB, which basically said there are 10 categories of benefits, and I'll show them to you in a minute, including prescription drugs that must be provided by all health plans. And this is a critical piece, too, by all new health plans. 
there's grandfathered health plans, health plans that probably many of us are part of through our employers, they're not affected by the ACA in the same way. Um, and that's why you sometimes hear, and this is I think what the Obama administration said in the beginning, for most Americans, the ACA is not going to change anything. Most of us are already getting coverage 60-something like percent through our employer. That's not changing. We're really talking about people that are, have been shut out. They can't get coverage in the private market. Um, or they can't really get good coverage, or they're some changes in Medicaid. But for most people that are already getting insurance through their um, current, a current plan, those plans don't have to do all these things. So we can talk about that later if you want. But for those new plans coming into the market, those are new plans that are going to have to be part of all the state exchanges. And in, in Medicaid, um, there are essential health benefits that must be covered. And here they are. Those are the 10 categories on, on the darker blue. And I just wanted to point out that there was some um, ongoing discussion about what it meant to have to provide uh, prescription drug coverage. And there were some concerns raised by HIV community about that. And the final rule uh, came down to say the plans must cover at least the greater of one drug in every US pharmacopoeia category and class or the same number of prescription drugs in each category and class as the EHP benchmark. This gobbledygook essentially means um, there's discretion and there's some concern that has to be monitored at the state level. But from the look at what states are already bringing forth as for their benchmarks, things look pretty good. But it's still an area to watch. So the other thing providers and HIV experts can do in their state is try to find out what their health, their benchmarks are at their state level. And does that, from your expertise as an HIV provider, is that good enough or you know, is the right care for your, your patients? So Medicare, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. These were some things that happened in Medicare as part of the law that were good and are, uh, already have started to take effect. The first, um, everyone knows about the ADAP troop issue that was going on with Part D. So when the Medicare Part D drug law passed in 2006, which, uh, extended, which included prescription drugs as part of Medicare, which was a good thing, um, it had a provision in that, um, well, everyone, and everyone knows Part D is the prescription drug benefit and has that donut hole thing that nobody likes. Um, so when the law passed in 2006, it included this statement, this exception. Um, you know, at, when you're in the donut hole, what happens is you get to a certain point in your Medicare, you go into the donut hole, and then you have to cover the cost of your drugs until you get to another level, like catastrophic level, right? Okay. So um, what you do during that time is you might rely on another insurer. You might, and a lot of people on Medicare have other coverage. Um, you might pay out of pocket, whatever. Not a good situation, but that's the situation that was um, in place. What the law said in 2006 was ADAP, which we know helped a lot of people with HIV in that donut hole, could pay for those drugs in that point. But those would not cover, be counted towards that catastrophic level. So it created the situation where you'd have states paying for people in that donut hole paying for people in that donut hole, paying for, never getting out of the donut hole because they could, it couldn't be counted. Um, and that was a real problem. That was fixed in the ACA as of 2000, right immediately, that went away. So that's no longer an issue and has allowed ADAP dollars to go much further. The other thing is that the uh, ACA is closing the donut hole for everybody. So that's already started. That started with some rebates and, and that's gradually going away prevention enhancements. And this is an area that's very, very um, important for people with HIV as well and people at risk. Um, there's a lot more emphasis on prevention in the ACA than there generally has been in our healthcare system uh, up until this point. And that's a very good thing. Um, and there's many different ways in which this manifests. 
But one I wanted to highlight, because it's fresh on probably everyone's mind, is the US Preventive Services Task Force A and B recommended preventive services must be provided by all new health plans free of charge. And by Medicaid to new enrollees free of charge. Uh, if they provide them free of charge, they get a, um, an enhanced incentive. And by Medicare, free of charge. This is a big incentive, not only incentive to provide preventive services, but now it's the law. If you enroll in one of those state marketplaces, they have to give you these services. And there's a whole list of these services, um, and there's a lot of them. And in addition, uh, new, new services were extended to women that already went into place. So women get, will get on top of that additional services. And everyone knows about the USPSTF ruling that just came out this week, the final rule saying, and lo and behold, routine HIV testing is now rated A. That's very significant because health plans may or may not have wanted to cover it in the past, but they look to these guidelines and now they have to free of charge. For sexually active women, um, already it's gone into effect routine HIV screening annually. But now routine HIV screening is what must be provided free of charge to people in new health plans and in Medicaid, um, and a whole list of other um, services. So here's the biggie, and probably the most confusing, Medicaid. Um, what the ACA did, what the law did, was essentially say, we're going to create one of the problems in Medicaid, um, and this was a function of when it was created and history is that it essentially was wasn't a program that said, if you're poor, here's your health coverage. It was a program that said, if you're poor enough to meet your state's eligibility requirement for being poor, and you're some other thing, disabled, a pregnant woman, um, a senior, you can get onto this program. But if you're not poor and one of these other categories, you're not eligible. And in fact, if you were a childless, non-disabled adult, who was very, very, very poor, met the income eligibility requirements. You were categorically excluded by law from Medicaid. Um, this has been a huge issue for people with HIV, right? Especially since 1996, since we actually had protease inhibitors, combination therapy. So it was sort of this catch-22. And it's gotten more and more profound as um, the guidelines have increasingly said and now say, if you're HIV infected, you should go on treatment. And the whole message of this Medicaid eligibility snafu or catch-22 was, sorry, you can't get onto Medicaid until you're so sick that you can then get onto Medicaid and get the treatments that would have prevented you from becoming so sick. And that applied to other groups of patients as well, but it was very, very stark with HIV. Um, and of course, now that we know the preventive, we've shown the preventive benefit has a lot of other implications. What the ACA did was recognize that for the first time and say, no longer, we are now taking away that categorical eligibility issue and say, if you are poor, you can qualify for Medicaid. In addition, it raised, it created a, C, a floor of income eligibility. So up until the ACA, up until um, the ACA was passed, states could set, had a lot of flexibility on eligibility levels, and they varied all over the place for a lot of populations. It said, you have to have 133% of federal poverty or more. So those were two really, really big things that were you know, ways to help people with HIV in a very significant way. Um, one thing I haven't mentioned yet, but is important to note, very important to note, the ACA, though, does not in any way extend coverage or benefits to undocumented individuals. Um, and those who are legal residents of the US um, cannot get Medicaid or exchange coverage until they have been here for five years. So there's still a population of people that will never benefit from the ACA and those who will benefit at some point. 
but not right away. So it's just important to mention that. Um, so the other thing that the ACA did said, and not only states are we telling you as of 2014, you have to cover a much bigger population and, um, and poor population at a better, you know, we're going to make it much more generous, and you have to give them these benefits. Um, we're going to give you much more money to do it. In fact, we're going to pay almost the, we're going to pay the entire thing for the first couple of years, and then most of it going forward. So from a financial perspective, it was a really, really good deal. Um, and then along came the Supreme Court decision in uh, June of last year. And what that decision did, and I think this is the important thing, it didn't change this law. It didn't say there's not now a mandatory eligibility category for low-income people in the United States to access Medicaid. What it said was that still exists. In fact, every provision of the ACA exists except the ability of the Health Department of Health and Human Services to force states to expand by withholding their Medicaid money. That's what the law would have done. It would have said, states, you have to expand. If you don't expand, we're taking all your Medicaid money back. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. In effect, it made it a state option because states can not do it and they don't face any penalty. So now we're in this real tug uh, place. And I thought pe people might want to know, just to give you a sense of what kind of coverage there is today, so what, what's at stake here? Um, right now, all states provide Medicaid coverage to pregnant women, to kids, to seniors, to those who are disabled. Sometimes it, they have to be very, very poor. But when you get to low-income parents, 33 states limit coverage to low-income parents to those who are under 100% of the federal poverty. 16 states limit coverage to those who are under 50% of the federal poverty. When you talk about low-income adults who are, don't have kids and are not disabled, 26 states don't cover them at all. So this is what we're talking about. That was what the ACA was going to fix. And now we're in this situation where, as you read in the papers every day, it's, it's very um, uncertain. Most people in the health policy community believe that at some point, most states will opt into this because it is a very, very good deal. They're paying for their patient. They're paying for people's care in other ways. The other thing you probably already know or might have heard, especially if you're affiliated with a hospital, what it sounds like a lot of people here are, is that dish payments, so the disproportionate share payments that come from the federal government to hospitals for Medicaid, I mean to, to states to give to hospitals who have big Medicaid populations and to Medicare, um, those, because the ACA assumed that they wouldn't need, be needed as much, go, a lot of them go away. So a lot of the hospitals are really behind <laughs> wanting their states to expand. So it's, it's going to put an undue pressure on hospitals. So, so you're probably wondering where we are today with the Medicaid expansion. Um, I'm going to show you one map. And this is just of governors, I'm getting my time check, of governors who have said they support it. This is different than what their legislatures are going to do. Um, and that will become important in a minute. 27 state governors have said, I support expansion, include several Republicans. Um, four states said, we're still thinking about it. 20 said, no way. But this is just what governors said. I don't know if anyone looked at the Washington Post this morning. There was a big article saying, well, actually, there's 16 states that are kind of hanging in the balance. And we know that the Florida governor, Scott, he came out in favor of it. That got a lot of media attention. His legislature, Republican legislature, said no way. And they, I think, have till today to actually make that decision for this cycle. So this is very volatile. Um, I did a little calculation to give you a sense of what this means for people living with HIV in terms of the distribution. So right now, 68. If all of those states expanded, that would account for 68% of people with HIV are living in those states that governors have supported an expansion. New York has supported the expansion, and New York will expand. 
um, 31% in states opposing, and just a percent in states weighing. That's the optimistic scenario for the near term. Um, but the decisions are not final. So Florida. Florida actually represents 11% of people living with HIV. So that 68% quickly becomes you know, 57% if Florida says no. So this is, what, this is the kind of situation I think we're all struggling with right now. We just don't know. And just to show this point here about the South, just to show it again, all the white states there where there's not um, likely to be an expansion right now are mostly in the South. And from you know, take picking up on Vicky's talk, this is where all of those factors come together again. And people living with HIV or at risk there are where there, there's many more complicated issues. And those are the states where there's likely not to be as expanded coverage. But the one thing that I will say, and I, I talked to a group of physicians last weekend, and they didn't know this. So I'm going to assume that not everybody knows this either. Because why would you know it? Because it's so confusing. Um, because of the Supreme Court decision and subsequent rulings by HHS, um, states, as I mentioned, can't, don't have to expand because they won't be penalized. But they also can expand when they decide to do it. Before, they had to by January 1, 2014. Now they can do it January 1, 2014, January 1, 2015, the middle of They can do it at any point. That means the ability or the time to influence that decision is ongoing. And it's not a one-time thing. So I'm just putting that out there. Um, and we haven't even gotten to, I'm going to skip over health systems improvements or go through it quickly, because Ryan White is um, probably where, you're, where we want to end up. Um, there's a lot of improvements on the health systems that's embedded in the ACA. There's Medicaid health homes. Oh, you probably want to, this is an important one, increase Medicaid payments for providers, for primary care providers, which includes subspecialists. So a lot of people in this room who would be eligible for increased payment rates under Medicaid to match the Medicare levels, which I know talking to many physicians who do HIV care is still not sufficient, but better than they are now. Those are for two years, 13 and 14. And there's a lot of uh, pressure and discussion around extending those. And so there's, other, there's a lot of other health systems improvements. So let's go to Ryan White and the implications for Ryan White, because there's a lot of concern, and I've heard it, um, around what this means for the program. So, one of the things that we all know is that insurance coverage alone, and I think we've heard this earlier today, does not mean access to a receipt of care. And we know that how important Ryan White is as a safety net and what it does. It fills the gaps um, for people with HIV who have no coverage or limits. This is a point that I don't know if everyone realizes. Because we all assumed, I think, years ago that most people that had Ryan White as a support for their care didn't have insurance at all. right? They had nothing. Well, actually, those people are there. And we know how critical the program is the only thing they have. But most people that rely on Ryan White actually do have insurance. And the insurance that they have is not sufficient to provide them the HIV care or get them to the care they need or keep them in the care that they need um, to, to be successful. So Ryan White will need to change but continue to be critical. And this is a message that um, you can say strongly from a data perspective. I will also say that the administration has stated this pretty strongly um, in the last few months. Um, but what happens to it will so much depend on what states choose to do. This is the point I was just making, that most Ryan White clients actually have insurance. And this is, this is critical, right? Because if today most Ryan White clients have insurance and more people are going to get insurance in a couple years through the in a year through the exchanges and maybe through Medicaid expansion, doesn't mean they're going to have the sufficient level of coverage that they need 
to be successful and live healthy, long lives into their 70s so that they can die of cardiac arrest or other things. Um, it, it, it means, and, and actually plans and other, and Medicaid and the private market can still set limits, which we know have been a big issue. And I know I'm out of time, but I want to make a, um, a couple points that if everyone's not familiar with what happened in Massachusetts, which essentially expanded like the ACA over the last decade, what they found in Massachusetts is their Ryan White program remained as critical as before. The funding that it needed still was needed. It just used it differently. It used its program to pay for premiums and co-payments and to help people get engaged in care. And they have a very strong case. And they've had great results, both um, uh, reduced diagnoses, high, high, high retention and viral load suppression. This just shows what Ryan White's already paying for to make that point that there, there's a combination of different things. This is from, um, oh, so these are just some points and I'm going to show you one more chart. More like clients will gain coverage through Medicaid and the exchanges. A greater share of funding can shift to cover the services that are not covered in the private sector or by Medicaid or have limits. Ryan White providers can assist clients with enrollment and new coverage. There's a program called Navigators and Assisters. You might wonder about reauthorization, um, and I'm completely, I'm over time, because there's a red thing in two minutes here. But reauthorization, the program is, is technically, the, reauthor the current authorization ends on September 30th. It does not need to be reauthorized to continue. It needs funding from Congress. Those two things are not necessarily the same. So, it, and it's not on schedule to be reauthorized at this point um, for a lot of reasons, which we can discuss in the questions. So right now it's not, it, it's really about Congress's continued role in funding the program. This is a, um, from a report we recently did, which just shows you Ryan White is in a very good place to support people along the entire treatment cascade with services that are not likely to be covered by private sector and Medicaid um, plans. And it will continue to be critical in many, many ways. There's a, the payer of last resort requirement I did not even get time to discuss. Um, so we can, if you have questions about that. Um, and the point I made before about joining networks. I think I'm at to my questions again, which everyone mostly got right except the second one. So can we do them really quickly? What's your answer to this one? Um, as of January 1st, 2014, can people with HIV who are, document, who are legal residents and um, not undocumented, uh, be denied coverage? Must they be covered, but only after a waiting period? Must they be covered, or can they be charged higher rates? Great, so almost all of you know that as of that date, yeah, okay, I'm allowed to take my time. So we'll go to the next one. Um, and this one, less people got this one. Um, what can Ryan White do as under um, when ACA goes into effect? Or will it no longer be needed? Great, that's exactly right. And in fact, um, Ryan White can pay for part of a Medicaid visit, which may not be known to a lot of people, but it can, and that will continue to be really important. So I'm going to stop and hopefully answer some of your questions. Thank you, Jennifer. That was another really wonderful talk. Um, I think I feel relieved. 
less anxious, more informed. There's still lots of questions. We'll see how it plays out. And it's fortunate to be in New York um, or Connecticut. But there are a number of questions about New Jersey. Yeah, that, I'm going to have um, to get out my New Jersey there map. There must be a lot of people in the audience from New Jersey because, um, well, has New Jersey decided about the marketplace networks and Medicaid expansion? It looked like from your map that it hadn't. New Jersey um, is going to default to the federal government on its exchange. Um, and on Medicaid expansion, I believe, has not yet decided. Let me just double check that. It's and I think that, that raises a, a, an interesting issue that we talked about last night, which is um, wh what about migration, right? And, right? and that has not necessarily, that's come into play at times, but this could really change that equation if people are living in a, a states adjacent to each other where there's such a stark difference. Although I'm looking here, and it looks like New Jersey has indicated it will probably, but I can confirm that. OK. Um, so um, this is sort of a political question, but um, what are the benefits of a southern state who refuses, actually? Why, why? It seems so obvious from what you said that there couldn't be any economic benefits. So these are political benefits or perceived political benefits. I, mean, I think that's right. I think that what you're seeing is um, uh, governors and or legislatures who are just not, don't want to participate at all. Um, and so that's part of it. Um, then a subset have said, and I think this is something to pay attention to, well, we get that we need, we could cover more people that are poor in our state, but our Medicaid system is, is kind of broken. And so why would we want to bring more people into a broken system? And actually, what's starting to be explored um, is the idea of using the Medicaid um, support to uh, pay for low-income clients' coverage in the marketplace, assuming that the marketplace might be better. And the federal government has released some preliminary guidelines around, if you want to do that, what you must do for them to protect them. And that's very important. But that's an interesting option. The one thing I didn't get a chance to say that's, that, that this whole Supreme Court decision has created a very odd situation where the idea when the ACA was passed was you would have, every, in every state, everybody up to 133% would be covered by Medicaid. And then everybody above that would get into the marketplace if, and, and would get subsidized or, or tax premiums. Now we have the situation where in states that don't expand, they might have no coverage for people between, let's say, 75% and 133% who are childless adults. Um, and those people can't even get subsidies in the marketplace, because the law says you can't get a subsidy until you're at 133%. So it created this other pocket of poor people who are going to be too poor to get the subsidies. So that's, <laughs> and it's, it's not, not, this is what happens with unintended consequences. And there's a lot of people looking at it, but it's a, a big concern. Um, someone picked up, and I think this is right, that dental care is not included in one of the 10 EHB categories. Right. And that is an area where Ryan White will continue to be very important. So yes, oddly. Okay. And here's a very personal issue. Um, um, it has to do with the fact that Ryan White currently covers a lot of physician salaries. Yes. And other healthcare workers' salaries. Is there a provision in the ACA for that, or is that? That falls on Ryan White still. 
as well. That is a big area of vulnerability for Ryan White providers and is, uh, I know, is of concern to a lot of you. And um, Mike Sag gave a talk a week ago where he quantified some of that potential impact and what it means. This is why I say getting in, in uh, one of the things I think HIV providers can do besides getting into networks is to market to those plans and the states that you know how to keep, to get people engaged in and retained in care in a way that other providers don't, and not just people with HIV, right? Our HIV experience is very transferable more broadly, and so I think that has to be, that's, states need that, but they need to, to kind of figure out how to get it. So I think that's a really big selling point to them, and it's a, a very important one. The other thing is a lot of, uh, and this is, I know, of, of it's a challenge, but um, clinics are beginning to look on how they can how they can become federally qualified health centers if they're not, or affiliate with federally qualified health centers who are supported under the ACA with a lot of additional funding. Yeah. Will the will there? I think you answered this, um, but I know it's a problem for a number of patients. Will there be a cap for some of the commercial plans for um, medications? Commercial plans can still decide on limits. So they can't cap the amount of money. Like you, they can't say, sorry, once you reach a certain amount of money, you can't have any more benefit. But they can say you can get X amount of drugs per month or per year, just like they do now. And that's, where, that's a place where Ryan White will continue to be really, really important. So I think part of what um, a lot of us are doing, uh, the HIV AIDS Bureau at HRSA is doing, is trying to lay out what are the things that support people getting into care, staying in care, doing better on that cascade, and how does Ryan White ensure that? As a direct um, contact for providers who want to get more information, particularly about um, what the federal marketplace choices are being, how they're being made within their own state or their own um, network that they're in now? Yeah, the three places um, to go, depending upon where you want to go, you can go to the federal government's healthcare.gov site, and they'll have that. You can come to Kaiser's site. But you could also, if, if you know Andrea Weddle at the HIV Medicine Association, she's the most plugged in right now to as an interface between providers and the policy. And I would go to Andrea. Um, and I wholeheartedly, she's done an amazing job of, of making, really highlighting to the federal government the concerns of providers, but also helping providers navigate that territory. Great. I think we're still hungry for more information, but also for lunch. <laughs> so thank you so much. Sure. It's really wonderful. Okay. So um, we, we were to resume at 105. I think we'll make it um, 115, the absolute latest, and expect everyone back and in um, their seats to continue. Thank you very much. It was a wonderful morning. Thank you to all of the speakers and for the questions.